Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Adequately Informed Podcast for Tuesday, August 18th, 2020. My name's Joe Hicks. And mine's Evan Kelly. And Evan Kelly, what are we here to do today? Well, Joe, we are going to discuss the news of the world, the great questions of our time. And to do so, we are going to evaluate facts and opinions from all corners, taking good ideas, no matter where they come from doing our best to stay within the boundaries of good faith and always striving to keep you, our loyal listeners, adequately informed. Yeah, we understand that we aren't human. We don't know everything. We don't sit atop the ivory tower. We know that other perspectives other than our own can be valid. Big shocker. I know. It's crazy. And hell, I'll even extend this. We can understand that people can have essentially the same goals of us, but can disagree about how to get there. (gasps) Blasphemy. You're telling me someone who isn't as extreme as me cares about the same thing, but is just a little bit of tepid about the extreme thing? (gasps) (gasps) But anyway. Hey, Evan. Hey, Joe. Uh, What do you want to talk about? Well... Much like Terry Cashman, I'm talking baseball. Major League Baseball has decided to start. (laughs) I don't even get it. I don't even get it. Somebody write in. Tell me you get it. Somebody. I hope somebody gets it. Yeah, I could explain it now, but I guess I'm gonna. I guess I'm gonna keep it a mystery. You're gonna keep it going. All right. (laughs) So, Major League Baseball has started its season. During the coronavirus pandemic, fans are not allowed and there's a bunch of protocols in place. But unlike leagues such as the NBA, there is no bubble. So teams are still traveling. And this has not gone smoothly, to put it mildly. There have been a lot of resources invested in making sure that there are no outbreaks within Major League Baseball and the season runs smoothly. But even with all the safeguards in place there have been failures. So I want to kind of talk about this because baseball is very important to me, but hopefully by the end expand it into how Major League Baseball is indicative of the broader societal response to COVID overall. All right. Let me guess. The main takeaway is we're going to do a little bit, but not all of it. And we're going to expect that the little bit of it should be enough, but it's not but we're going to do it anyway. I think that's a part of it. We'll see where it goes. We'll see where it goes. It's a crazy roller coaster, this show. No, just tell me. You already know, Evan. We don't have to see where it goes. You could just tell me. But like Terry Cashman, some things must remain a mystery. All right. (laughs) So when Major League Baseball suspended its season during spring training, Players basically went back to their homes, whether that was near their team's ballpark or some players went back to their homes in the Dominican Republic or even other foreign countries. There was really no control over what the players did during the time that the season was suspended. So when the league decided to resume, they had onboarding testing to make sure that people were not entering into the season and immediately spreading the virus to their teammates. There were several positive tests in the inboarding process, which is to be expected. The virus is far-reaching, and it stands to reason that players 
may not have been subject to any sort of safety protocols when they weren't under the supervision of the league. But players quarantined until they had two negative tests, and that's when they were allowed to rejoin their team. And by the time the season started, any players who were still in the COVID protocol were not active, and no one should have taken COVID into the league. And then, all of a sudden, the Miami Marlins experienced an outbreak within the first week of the season, which eventually led to 20 players and personnel, over 20 players and Marlins personnel, testing positive for the coronavirus. For context, the typical baseball roster in a normal season up to this point has been 25 players. So this is almost an entire baseball team's worth of people contracting the virus just within one squad. A massive, near-complete outbreak that caused the Marlins to essentially have to overhaul more than 50% of their active roster. <laughs> so they had to bring in a whole bunch of extra people? Like, I, hey, I wish that... Hey, I don't think... You're going to have to play for a little bit. We're, we're all fucked. Joe, I shit you not. Like I said, in well, for this season, the rosters are expanded to 28. They called up 17 new players. <laughs> More players showed up to play after they finally got the cases under control than there were already active players on site. Only in baseball. Like... You know, I, I like how in, you know, other sports they, um, you know, there are like plays and other things that you have to learn the nuances of the team. I mean, I, th- I may be reducing baseball a little bit, but like when you play baseball, you kind of play baseball. Uh. Yeah, I mean, there are strategies you talk about in terms of defensive shifts and how to how for pitchers to attack hitters and for hitters what to look for in pitchers. But you're right. There's no playbook in baseball. There's not any intricacies that you have to memorize before you can get out onto the field. Like, hey, bud, you're coming in to play left field. You know how to play left field, right? And they're like, yeah. I'm like, okay, you can go do it. (laughs) Yeah, for the most part, that's accurate. So the Marlins lost seven games to COVID that were postponed, which will eventually have to be made up in an already shortened season, which is going to be really bite them in the ass later when they have to play seven or, you know, seven games in probably three or four off days that they have scattered throughout the abbreviated season. Joe, it got so bad that the MLB said, screw it, we're going to need so many doubleheaders that any game that's part of a doubleheader, we're only going to play seven innings, and then that's it. <laughs> they, wow. They, they sliced doubleheaders down by four full innings. A- a- emergency measures baseball shit. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, gosh, there's just, they don't want a lot of baseball to be played as weird as that sounds they've adopted a rule where if a game goes into extra innings you start each half inning with a free runner on second base just to try to get him to score wait say that again i i so, I, I looked at the recording real quick you, you so wait if it goes into overtime is that what you said or extra innings yeah if a game goes into extra innings you get to start with a free runner in scoring position <laughs> jesus just just in hopes that 
the game will end after 10 and you don't have to go any further. Oh, which man. Some people have said, well, you know, in hockey or soccer, there's shootouts, blah, 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 blah. And that's fine, but then baseball should change the point systems in its standing to match something like hockey where a shootout loss is still worth a point. But baseball is still just doing a simple win-loss, which I think is bullshit. But this isn't about baseball, because if this was about baseball, it would be a very different podcast. What if if they did a home run derby after nine innings? It has the exact (laughs) same logic. It really does. Why the fuck not? Start the inning with the bases loaded. Who cares? Who cares? Right? That's kind of what they're saying. Like it doesn't matter. Just it's like um, it's like in college football when they um, it they when it goes into what is it like extra overtime? It's just like okay, you're gonna start off at like the twenty yard line and uh, see if you can make it. And if you can, we'll give the other team a chance to make it. And uh, we're just gonna do it until someone doesn't make it. And, yeah, uh, exactly. <laughs> Oh, that's great. <laughs> yeah. So um, definitely a little silly, but that's kind of what's necessitated in a season like this so that players don't just die of exhaustion before the COVID can get them. Um, the origin of the Marlins outbreak is not known, but Derek Jeter, who's the current CEO of the team, has said that he knows that his guys got complacent. They weren't following social distancing. They didn't take the self-imposed quarantine rules seriously and it had dire consequences obviously it's a group of young healthy guys that probably won't see long-term effects although we still don't really know the long-term effects but probably more directly impactful is the way that it affected their schedule and they're really going to be feeling the sting of that later in the season with all those makeup games man i want to i want a scenario where the phrase marlins outbreak where marlins is the subject and not the object like <laughs> like what's an outbreak of marlins Just fish falling from the sky <laughs> but anyway and so the players from there, right right at that moment, should have known how serious it would be if an outbreak occurred on their team, and they should have done everything within their power to prevent the spread by any means necessary. Evan, let me guess. They didn't. They didn't. Whoa. And the team that had the next outbreak shouldn't surprise anyone because it's the St. Louis Cardinals. Ah. The Cardinals had an outbreak where 10 different players and staff tested positive and 16 St. Louis Cardinals games were canceled because whereas the Marlins had more overall cases, they all sort of dropped within the same couple of days. So everyone kind of could quarantine more or less during the same amount of time and get back to the field quicker. But with the Cardinals, it was just a trickle of two daily cases and then three the next day and one the next day. So they were not cleared to resume play until they had lost 16 games. And something to remember too, is that baseball games are not played in a vacuum. When you have a game canceled because you couldn't control your shit and had an outbreak of coronavirus other teams that did nothing wrong have to suspend 
the games that they would play against you, which goes to hurt them later in the season. The Pittsburgh Pirates have not had an outbreak and by all accounts have dealt with the pandemic in an effective way, but they have lost a lot of games because they were supposed to play the Cardinals multiple times during that stretch. And unlike the Marlins, where the cause is undetermined, we know that during a road game, two Cardinals players left their hotel to go to a casino, which violated the MLB guidelines for quarantine and social distancing during the season. Like these rules aren't aren't just like bullshit. Like, hey, you're like I'm thinking of like class trips where you would go somewhere and they're like, well, we're responsible for you and you're not an adult, so you can't go do things like these rules are in place because there's a fucking pandemic going on. Yeah, exactly. And the other thing that's baffling to me is every single player can choose to opt out whenever they want. If you think these rules are too restrictive and you want to still go out and live your life, you can do that. But for this year, you cannot do that and be a Major League Baseball player. Those are mutually exclusive right now. They are well aware of that. They agreed to that during the restart negotiations. If you think that these rules are too restrictive, you can opt out. Simple as that. I I have an idea. Let's okay. uh, let's assign some incentives or align some incentives. What if your when your team can't play due to COVID, you it's counted as a loss? Well, that who boy, I get where you're going with it. I think it opens up kind of a kettle of worms because. What if your bat boy goes out and violates protocol and brings the spread to the team? Should the players be penalized if an outbreak gets in through some stupid way like that? Or what if you are a team that played a team that had an outbreak, so you get an outbreak? Should you be penalized even though your players followed the protocol? I just think that there's too many exceptions for that rule to really stand up you know what i mean maybe maybe not maybe (laughs) uh you just have to take it extra seriously you know forget bat boys maybe play it pay a grown-ass adult who can quarantine (laughs) to do that if it's so essential (laughs) like i mean we can think we, we can we can you know we're already suspending some of the decorum of baseball in in light of the pandemic, I think I think we can uh, go a little bit harder. Um, <laughs> it, well, if we actually, truly want to, if we truly, you know, I I, I, I guarantee you, the, the the baseball clubs will have pretty harsh rules for the players on uh, quarantine and staying in a bubble. If it came to be that you would lose a game if a team had to bow out because of COVID. I mean, like some sort of threshold of what would cause that. Well, I think there already is the incentive to not uh, completely derail your schedule. I think that that is already sort of an aligned incentive. And I think what we're going to find out coming up here soon is that teams already are beginning to take it more seriously, but it's being addressed at a player level when players have misconduct as opposed to 
something happening on a team level. But I'll, I'll get to that in a second because we have already, just within the last couple of days, seen the third team outbreak of the season. There are only 30 MLB teams, and 10% of them already, just within a few weeks, have had outbreaks. So far, it's on the Cincinnati Reds, and there's only one case. We don't know who it is. We don't know the cause of it. We don't know if anyone was violating protocols. We don't know if it is some sort of fluke. But what we do know is that the Reds aren't playing right now. Their season is suspended indefinitely until MLB officials are absolutely certain that they will not spread the coronavirus. Okay, so they'll suspend if one person gets it? Yes. Okay, because with the numbers you had proposed earlier, I I was assuming that there was like some sort of cutoff, like uh, some group of, you know, let's say, let's say 25% of the team gets it, then... um, then it's called off, but I guess if it's just one. Yeah, the threshold is one person, and you're done. That's mm. what we're finding with the Reds. Yeah, let's still count it as a loss. Let's uh, <laughs> let's let's be harsh. Let, let's have some harsh rules for a season. It's unfair. It's life. It's baseball. You got a free runner in the tenth. It makes up for it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if, if you if your team has to lose <laughs> as a as a percentage of so so as a percentage of games you get that many free runners on second base on games going (laughs) or some shit like that yeah sure whatever we can tinker yeah yeah. it's funny for a game that prides itself on its history and tradition in reality mlb will just fuck with whatever they don't care um yeah but here's where it comes into talk about the specific players and sort of some of the punitive actions that are being taken. And this one hits close to home because it affects my Cleveland Indians. On August 8th, pitcher Zach Plesak pitched a gem of a game while visiting the Chicago White Sox. Zach Plesak is from Crown Point, Indiana, which is in the Chicagoland area. And after the game, he decided to go out and go to a restaurant, have some drinks and food with his buddies from high school. And apparently an MLB league official observed him coming back into the hotel after hours in violation of the explicit policy at the time of Major League Baseball and the Cleveland Indians. He was reported to the team and he was sent back home to Cleveland early in a private car service told to quarantine for three days, test daily, and was essentially in very hot water. Now, the team had a meeting to discuss disciplinary action to air their feelings about what Zach Plesak had done, how he had betrayed their trust, and one of the Cleveland players who spoke in those meetings in defense of Plesak was fellow starting pitcher Mike Clevenger. He essentially thought that, uh, you know, his actions weren't unreasonable, they should cut him slack, blah, blah, blah. Well, on August 9th, after the team had already boarded the plane home, it was revealed that Mike Clevenger had gone out with Zach Plesak that (laughs) night and lied about it, didn't tell anyone... (laughs) Just sat there with his thumb up his ass, and <laughs> it is—it's absurd. 
it's kind of like the uh, the theory of whenever there's like a murder or something, and if there's like some guy calling in, like, "Hey, I, I just want to do anything I can help, man. You know, we need to catch these murderers. We need to catch I'll find the real killer. killer. Yeah, yeah. Anything I can do to help, man. And there's a good chance that that guy's the killer. He's just <laughs> trying to rub it in. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> hey, don't be so harsh on the guy. We all want to go get dinner and drinks, right? I mean, it's pretty reasonable. I mean, it wouldn't surprise me if that's exactly what he said. <laughs> That's good. So, so if it wasn't bad enough that these guys broke the explicit Major League Baseball policy, again, that they agreed to every day by not opting out of the season, they agree to these rules and restrictions voluntarily of their own free will, and they lied about it, or at least Mike Clevenger lied about it, and potentially could have spread the virus to his entire team on the team flight home. Then on August 11th, Zach Plesak created a six and a half minute Instagram video blaming, of all things, the media. Wait a minute. You can make a six and a half minute Instagram video? Apparently. I'm not that's, on Instagram. so that's, that's too much video for a platform like that. Put it on <laughs> fucking YouTube. That's what it's for. <laughs> So his whole rant was about how the media has blown it way out of proportion, and he's a really good guy, and his mom's a nurse, so he takes COVID seriously. He was trying to tell everyone how much he cared about public safety and keeping those around him safe, but its message was undercut by the fact that he recorded this video while driving. He was... His eyes were constantly darting back at the road, apparently weaving through traffic while telling everyone that he cared about safety. And he basically neither player really wanted to take responsibility for what they had done. And that bothered the team because, for one, making that risk of going out during a global pandemic and not adhering to social distancing. Although, I guess that's another thing, is that they claimed that... They social distanced at the restaurant, but I'm sure that they didn't sit six feet apart from their friends. That's just not how restaurants operate. Mm -hmm. And also, um, Zach Plesak, one of his defenses was that he was maintaining the CDC guidelines for group gatherings when, in fact, it was not the CDC guidelines that he was referring to. It was actually the Ohio public health guidelines that he was referring to, which didn't matter because he was in fucking Illinois. <laughs> so it's bad enough that they did that because their manager, Terry Francona, is extremely vulnerable because he has had a number of health problems their teammate and arguably one of the most beloved men in baseball carlos carrasco is recovering from cancer which he finally beat just last year and they still decided to take that risk and then what's worse is that they've just never taken responsibility for it and at a players only meeting the voices that were most vocal leaders on the team like francisco lindor decided that this was not something that they wanted to brush under the rug. And after consulting with Terry Francona, with Chris Antonetti and Mike Chernoff, the executives in the front office, 
it was decided that Clevenger and Plesak would be sent back down to the minor leagues, <laughs> essentially as a way in a way that's nice. punitive. Yeah. So um, they they didn't test positive, and that's obviously good. But the trust has been broken so irreparably. Another Cleveland player, Oliver Perez, made it clear. He told his coach that if Plesak and Clevenger were allowed to return to the team prematurely, that he would opt out of the season. That's how seriously oh, wow. that this action is being taken yeah. by their teammates. And here's the thing. Leaving aside the very real health concerns, it's just so selfish to risk bringing a virus back to the clubhouse when they know the ripple effect that that has on the entire team schedule. It is so difficult to navigate this already shortened season when down the road you're going to be having to play multiple doubleheaders because there was an outbreak on your team and your games got canceled. So my big takeaway, because I think that Major League Baseball, I, I think there was some rough stuff in the beginning, but I feel like since the players have been back, Major League Baseball has taken safety concerns seriously. It seems to me like the issue is that too many of the individual players don't give a shit about the rules and guidelines, again, that they have agreed to. So my big takeaway is, why don't we take this seriously? Even when we see the societal impacts, even when we see the impacts that it has in our field, as everyone could plainly see from the situations that happened in Miami and St. Louis. Why do people still feel that they are invincible, that they are above this, and that they don't have to worry about the virus anymore? Yeah. Well, I'll say for one, it's gone on way too fucking long and should have been taken care of, but we're just in an unfortunate situation where... It's really left to individual action to take it seriously. Like, if if we could have done the big overarching societal stuff, we could have done it. You know, they're having giant pool parties in Wuhan now. <laughs> I, I something I saw on online, but like that's where the virus started, and uh, we're still having massive amounts of death. Like, hell, I'll admit, last week. I did have a meal at a restaurant because it was my grandma's birthday and she wanted it, I guess. I was very hesitant, but um, it's 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 getting I, I, <laughs> I mean, as far as professionals in a, a tight knit environment like that, and especially since they had to opt into it, I find that very like they should be able to do that but then also just on a societal level it's hard to maintain the strict levels of social distancing and uh quarantining that is really required to do this pandemic especially deal with this pandemic especially since we've been having to do it in some form or another for a really long time but yeah but that's the key difference, I think, that you highlight is if you want to make a one-time trip out to a restaurant, I trust your judgment to do that. You didn't opt into an agreement that is predicated on you maintaining very strict standards to engage in otherwise risky activity. Your right. job doesn't require you to be within touching distance of 50 other men 
for a baseball game. Yeah. The 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 whole reason why people are comfortable playing sports again is because we expect the athletes to go on lockdown so that they can play at times like if this is going to extend to football contact sports in a way that's going to be safe so to say and i'm not saying that this is your argument because clearly it's not and in fact this is the key distinction between say something that you or i do in terms of going to a restaurant and what these guys are doing is that they agreed to be held to a higher standard and they can leave if they want to but what they can't do is make their personal decisions and then also go to their job, which comes with an elevated risk of transmission. And furthermore, they can't lie to it and jeopardize the season for their teammates, other players on opposing teams, fans and other interested parties around the league. And as a Cleveland fan, I am beyond crushed and disappointed. Mike Clevenger had been one of my favorite players for a long time. And Zach Plesak is having a really promising start to his career. But they have to act like adults here. And they have to take responsibility for violating voluntarily agreed to protocols and then lying about it like fucking children. Zach Plesak is considered young in the MLB. He was born three days before me. This is not an issue of lack of cognitive faculty. It's a choice to be selfish and immature. Yeah, we've got fully developed frontal cortex. We're full full adults. Yeah. Um, um, Yeah, if anything, I think this pandemic just shows, uh, like... Yeah, this is one thing uh, I'm pretty sure you and I have observed uh, coming into adulthood is that a lot of adults aren't very adult-like. And <laughs> um, this uh, this is a very t- clear test case that uh, shows that very well. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, yeah, just be the adult. Uh, be a little small C conservative. Make a you know, take some things seriously, weigh the circumstances, and uh, yeah, try and uh, do what you can, yeah. And again, like I said, I want to clarify the calculus is different for a major league baseball player and a private citizen, and in this case, they just chose to behave as if they didn't have to be accountable. When in their specific position, they very much do. Yeah. All right. I think that's enough sports talk. There's more sports talk than we've had on the podcast in a long time. Yeah, so because Joe- I, was act- I was actually <laughs> able to contribute some. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, that being said, Joe, what do you want to talk about? Uh, it's uh, it's Joe's Wacky Policy Corner. Uh, hey Maybe I'll have some jingle for it. Probably not. But Let's do the the pew 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 sound effect. I have that on 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 standby. Um, anyway, <laughs> so um, today's lovely policy is called a graduate tax. This is in the realm of 
uh, paying for higher education. So as many of our listeners will know that uh, the costs of education in the United States are quite prohibitive and they create a real burden on a whole lot of people. Um, many people are saddled with debts that are very high and the terms of them are such that they have to be paid back in a certain amount of time period. So you have to make regular payments regardless of your income to pay those loans back because a because an education is a product at least in this current mindset to help you get a job to help you pay for things and since you get a job to pay for things you should be able to pay for a, a student loan but we know that isn't always the case um, some people end up finishing college or doing some college and then they aren't able to get a better income and then they aren't able to pay it back or hell some people even uh, who are lower income don't have the means to pay for some of the stuff up front or are scared of what the debt burden would be and since they haven't had a life where they've had a job where they can possibly have a higher income they're scared to do it so what's the idea the idea is that after you graduate, instead of paying back a student loan, you pay back a percentage of your income now uh, as a tax. Now, this would be um, in a way for most. I The way I've envisioned this is as a tax, uh, as, as a scheme for states and state schools. Um so the idea would be is that once you're done with college, you go out and get a job. And then under my idea is, you know, let's say the first 10 or $20,000 that you earn, you don't pay any money back. But then if you say earn over $20,000, you pay 10% of your income uh, as a tax. And that goes towards the university system to pay off the education that you used. Now, there are many, many different scenarios, but um, because some of you might start thinking, um, well, am I going to have to pay that tax for forever? And my thought is, is no. Um, I the, the way I've kind of envisioned it is that if... You could have kind of a two uh, ver two tier version of this where, you know, you either pay back, you're paying the uh, 10% for 20 years after the end of your education or until you're, until you've paid off the cost of your education, whichever comes last so that you're uh, paying, at least getting, paying the amount that you owed or, you know, took out from the system. And then if you're if you're able to pay it back more quickly and you make a lot, then you're able to pay in more than you otherwise took out. Um, then the, another question is like, well, what if I only have some education, but I don't end up graduating? How much will like what will happen? Will I have to pay that back? And I would say yes, because you can get uh, some benefit from. The education, but then again, it would still only be on money made over twenty thousand dollars, and it would be ten percent, 
And then there would probably be a shorter term to pay back what either you owed or the length of time that it took to earn it. And then also another really big question is, well, what if you move? Uh, what, you know, it, it specifically states. States have a real big issue of funding these state schools, but then uh, you know, bringing in people to come and be students who are from outside of state. But then you know, once they're done with the education, that they just go back to whatever state or wherever else they came from, and they're not reaping the benefit of having that educated person in that uh, in that state. So the idea. Yeah, would- I want to I want to interject here because. There's a strong piece of supporting evidence that buttresses this point nicely. It's from The New Geography of Jobs by Enrico Moretti, where one of the constituent studies that he cites finds no correlation between state spending on higher education and an increase in the percentage of college graduates that live in a state. Essentially, no matter how much your state pumps into higher education, you can't stop people from moving away once they're educated. Ah, yes, Yes, indeed, Evan. But I have a I've thought about this. A possible solution would be to create a separate version of the kind of quote unquote loan or balance owed that it would be if you move out of the state. So the idea would be that. you, if you were to move out from the state, that you would have a loan that you would automatically have to pay off of that is otherwise in remittance during, you know, when you're living in the state and making the payments or not making the payments because you don't make them enough, but regardless. And then if you move out from the state, then you would have a loan that you would have to pay back as well. Now, if it could be that if you move back to the original state, then, you know, it'd be on the original payment program. But then if you leave the state, then you would still be paying something back. And my idea would be that it have a gradual repayment schedule while you're living in the state. So let's say for the, you know, over the 20 years, each year is only knocking off like, I don't know, two or three percent of the total principle of the loan so that you really have the incentive to stay the full 20 years there um, to increase your economic productivity in the state. Um, So that's that's my idea of how to deal with that, because otherwise it would be very easy for people to uh, get the education and then dip out and then never have to pay for it. But then this could also, because of the somewhat generous repayment terms or ones that are easier on people's incomes and requires a lot less risk, if a state were to propose this, I imagine you would end up getting a whole lot of people who would want to come and study at your universities because then they could be able to afford to pay off their education and then you would end up getting a whole lot of people moving to their state to stay there and take advantage of the uh, graduate tax scheme because other forms of repayment are so harsh these days. So I want to clarify something here. Maybe I just missed it, but I think it's really important uh, to clarify. The idea of the graduate tax is that all the payment is on the back end. There's no upfront tuition 
that yep. state schools would charge. Yes, that's that's the trade-off. Yeah. You're paying back in the back end, but you didn't pay anything to get into the school. Right. So education would be free at the point of service um, is the kind of technical way to do that. You don't owe anything up front. Um, you would probably also, you know, get your whatever stipend to for living situations, room and board. The idea like this is to merge both the idea that education is a public good that should be available for all, but also the realization that most of the benefits of a college education go to the person who got it, not exclusively, but then also a graduate tax ends up taxing more the, uh, the person who makes more, more, um, so the people who end up really benefiting from a college education end up paying more into the system. So this is making sure that the people who went to college also end up paying for it a little bit more directly, but then making sure that it is available as a service that everybody can use and don't have to take on a substantial financial risk when attending higher education. Yeah, so this was something that I had never heard of until you brought it up this week, Joe. But I'm kind of starting to like this type of idea for a couple of reasons. One is what you mentioned earlier about how it's structured in a way so that the amount that you pay back reflects the actual value you got out of the education. You know, there's a lot of people I think right now who are defaulting to going to college, taking out huge student loans, and then if that doesn't pan out, they're financially fucked for the rest of their life. But this system, I think, takes away that pressure, which I think could be a very positive development. The other thing that I like is that it incentivizes the schools to set their graduates up to have lucrative careers. Let's say University of Illinois looks and says, oh, well, X program is not producing very many productive graduates. Maybe we should try to <laughs> direct students away from that program Let it all out, Evan. lucrative programs. Yeah, okay, this... <laughs> <laughs> no, we're not, we're not actually going to go I don't want to be a dick, but... but... No, no, it's... Look, you're, you're, you're psychoanalyzing, but also you're right on the nose, so... Okay, um, right. <laughs> but, but yeah, yeah, I think it, 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 it really creates that desire if, if we say to schools, hey, you, your funding comes from your graduates after the fact, make sure that you are positioning them to succeed in the real world. Um, so I think that's positive. I do have... I guess some questions, because I think that you have thought of a lot of contingencies, but there are still some things that I am, I guess, think could be potential sticking points in terms of implementation. So I think mm -hmm. that you offer some good mitigating factors for how people could sort of evade it. But one thing that I kind of think of is if it's a scheme that is for state schools, and I agree with you, that that's probably the correct level of actor because you can't really force private schools to abide by this, but we have control over mm -hmm. public policy of state schools. What's to stop someone from say finishing three years at U of I and then transferring to, I don't know, Bradley and finishing out 
their last year there ah, and evading so, the tax. So my idea, like I call it a graduate tax because that's what it's called in the literature. But I think of it more of a higher education tax scheme. So my under my proposal, if it you know, if you end up taking like one semester of higher education at let's say a public school, because you know that's what it is, then you would be, and then even if you transfer out, you would still be on the hook tax-wise for that one semester for of school. A, for a prorated portion of the tax, yeah, yeah, essentially? Yeah, okay. so, so you would either, I mean, because there are the two uh, rep, you know, repayment uh, pillars, there is, um, you know, let's say the length of time and then the, the amount owed. And so, you know, if a graduate, if you graduate from a state school or graduate within the state and you have it, let's say you have 20 years, it's either, yeah, it's either 20 years of repayment or 20 years since it happened or the cost of the education gets repaid, whichever is last. Just take those take the amount of time that you would total repay, make it shorter and just keep the same rules. So let's say you take one semester of class. I mean, if you take 20 divided by four, then so let's say for five years or uh, no, for two and a half years, you would be repaying it back for all the money made over $20,000 or uh, the cost of the education, whichever is last. Okay, I, I like that. I think that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, another thing I want to ask about is incentives, because I think that it's something that I've already praised about it, that it aligns financial incentives for the student and the school and the taxpayer. It kind of tries to bring those all into alignment, which is really cool. Mm-hmm. But there is also an element to education that seeks knowledge for its own intrinsic value. Mm-hmm. And I, I believe that as a society, we do better when people are better educated, either due to spillover effects or sort of just the enlightenment that can occur within a higher education environment. So I'm interested in a policy that gets most people who are good fits into higher education. Mm-hmm. Do you think this program would do that or do you think that people who might have otherwise gone to college would opt for a career route if it means they aren't going to have to pay a tax later? Well, so people, plenty of people are having are doing some amount of college or trying to do college, even with a big financial risk that they don't know will pay off. So they may try and avoid a tax for a period of time. But if we were to look at student loans now and the types of student loans that people get, especially for partial coverage or even degrees that end up not panning out, they have less generous terms than what is being given under the graduate tax scheme. Um, And it's a lot less forgiving. So one of the things that I really like about this is that theoretically, you could under this system have people who you know, just get an education for education's sake. And if they never make a whole lot of money, they never end up paying a whole lot back. 
but they're still on hook to it, even if it goes past the 20 year window, then they still are paying it back over the money that they made. But it's not a substantial amount and they're not um, bankrupted by it because it's a percentage as opposed to a massive principle that is haunting them. Yeah, it's sort a of fixed like, account. It, uh, it's, or, it's almost yeah, like a loan, but you're no one's breathing down your neck if if you never pay it all back. They're like, it's cool, it's cool. A loan with the most generous terms as long as you continue to live within the state that you got the education. And okay. continue to be a taxpayer and functioning member. Well, I mean, you don't even have just a member of society. Um you will still get the benefits of that education because that's the thing. You know, it, we want the people who get we want the people who pay for the education or help subsidize the education of people to also enjoy the benefits of that person's education. And if they go off to another state like, you know, I got my uh, education in Illinois, I moved to Wisconsin and I am, you know, I am now helping the state of Wisconsin in their economic picture. But if I stayed in the state of Illinois, I'd be helping their picture. So it would be create if, you know, this system existed, there would be incentives for people to stay in the state. But if it turns out that they can't or if they don't make a whole lot of money or, you know, they want to keep continuing their education. You know, I think if there's like graduate in school, maybe the the terms are a little bit longer or the amount you have to repay back is a little bit higher. But um, or the percentage uh, rate of income you pay is a little bit higher. But it would still be it, it, it achieves, at least in my view, the idea that, you know, the people who support free college for all want where people are not unnecessarily burdened or overly, you know, decrepitly burdened by the, uh, you know, by student loans and by being able to unable to repay it and also bring forward the vision that people who can get an education should because it has a higher level good for society, regardless of them being able to get a good job after or not. So one thing that's kind of coming up as we're talking about this is I guess now maybe I'm a bit concerned about disincentivizing people to move because I think um, especially when we talk about the geography of jobs, I guess Enrico Moretti is going to come up a bunch this week. I guess that's just what it is. Mm-hmm. It's actually a positive to have a mobile labor market for people to be able to move across state lines. And kind of the solution that I think of is, can we nationalize the tax? Can we tack the tax onto a federal income and then just have that distributed to the state of the initial education so that you can move without penalty and you can still enjoy those favorable terms? I mean, I haven't thought about all the implication of a federalization of it. While I do agree with the point that it is beneficial for people to move where the work is, um, the way that this has been kind of envisioned is as a state solution for a state who wants to. Um, I, I'm basically trying to give the state of Illinois all the best public policy because, <laughs> you know, rah, rah for the homeland. Um, but... Um, yeah, I mean, I'm sure there there are some policy mechanisms 
that could be made at the federal level that could be well thought out that achieve the same goal. Um, but that just isn't quite what I was putting it towards, especially since the state schools. I mean, yeah, I mean, it, it would have to take a very large federal uh, response that I don't know um, would happen. Like, you know, we could kind of get into the, you know, uh, the utopian thinking and all that back and <laughs> forth. But it's like I I don't know if that's a step that um, as federal policy for public education at a state level would necessarily um, be what happens. So I don't know. Um, I guess um, so. I definitely understand what you're saying. It could happen. Uh, Public policy is very flexible. You can make yeah. anything happen any way you want it to. Um, but um, yeah, I don't. I don't know. So yeah, it's just that I don't think it's a deal breaker. But I just think about um, how in 2017 I moved from Ohio to Illinois. In 2018 I moved from illinois back to ohio and in 2019 i moved from ohio to indiana and i think that my life would be uh a lot trickier if i had to sort of lock into one state and that's why i sort of like the idea of nationalizing it and retaining many of the other things but um i guess that's just my, my or, little twist on it quick quick idea um what if the the federal loans were structured like that sure yeah so like, um, you know, when I went to, I mean, when most people go to school, so when I went to University of Illinois, I got a whole bunch of state or uh, what was it? I got a bu- whole bunch of federal loans. And then I also got state support for the education. So it could be very well that the Pell Grant program, instead of a traditional loan, is this percentage of income over course of years, blah, blah, blah. Um you know, sort of deal where you repay that. And then it could be that, you know, uh, your education in whichever states that one, I mean, until there was some federalization of the uh, payments for these schools that, you know, you would just owe a loan for the state portion of whichever school you went to. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also believe in the possibility that, um, you know, even private colleges could opt into the program, have sure. uh, yeah. have the repayment administered by the state under the same terms. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, I, I, I really like this solution, at least for, you know, this would be a great step forward that kind of merges some of the incentives and wishes and desires that people have for uh you know, funding of higher education. And there are already a few places that do this. Who does um, this? So there is a for-profit uh, coding academy called Lambda School. Um, he's he's kind of big in uh, neoliberal Twitters, the guy who makes it. Um, but uh, the idea is that the school is free at the outset. And if you, you know, and you only have to repay back if you get a job that pays like $50,000 or more, and then you pay it back as a percentage of income until it's paid off. And then you're, you're, you're scot-free. So that, that case is very narrowly terror or tailored for people in a specific job market, but that has jobs. 
and they are going to make money back and it is a model. Um, also Purdue, Purdue university has a part of this. So instead of, uh, having parent loans, um, at their school, you know, to help subsidize part of the education, you can get part of your education paid for through a scheme that is similar to this, where it's uh, free at the point of service, and then you pay back a percentage of your income uh, uh, after you leave. And um, it seems to be working out for them. And it's Interesting. Just, it seems to be a, a scheme that now there would be some transition issues, some funding in the meantime, and also some part of it is also uh, universities using their endowment uh, funds a whole lot more um, to uh, better deal with things. But I think in the long run, it helps align some incentives and you know keeps the whole thing funded and you know makes makes it a better situation. So the funding is kind of the final question that I want to ask because I'm just kind of curious to know what effect you think it would have on funding. And I guess more, what's the contingency? Because obviously if things are working well, your graduates are making a lot of money and then that money's getting funneled back into the education system and everything's well funded. But what if you hit some lean years? What if your graduates are not performing well and then that threatens to shortchange your current students. What's what's the what's the backup plan if there's a funding gap? Well, I mean, there are funding gaps in university nets now, and it seems like kind of the funding uh, backstop is really the state. Um, I don't know if this uh, this system really has a prescription for when things are bad. Um, I guess. I mean. You, you have the period now where, um, eh, you know what? I don't know. I don't know. I hadn't thought about that because so it is when you pay for your education with loans up front, the school gets the money up front. Mm-hmm. But under this sort of scheme, they get the money on the tail end. Huh. And obviously, and it, I guess just to clarify – Obviously, there would be some sort of transitional period where the rules would be different. I think that just comes down to implementation specifics, and I, you know, we can. Oh yeah, yeah, we, that you can argue endlessly, that and that's not the important part. Yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, that's that's I think at least something to consider because I don't have an answer either. It's just something that I thought about because there is that delay between when you provide the service to the student that costs money, and then they pay you later so there is some sort of gap and the gap might be a problem it might not um well i think also the schools would have to be very uh very aware of you know when they're getting more money like right now it kind of seems like in higher education there is no um (laughs) real cost constraints on things like I'm sure there are and there are state schools that you know don't have as many students and are struggling because of it but it would mean that there would have to be a lot more preparation for the future now I'm sure maybe some uh, higher education you know administrator would hear this and you know think I'm just completely off base which I, <laughs> I will allow that maybe I am but um, it could also lead 
to, you know, having to be a little bit more prepared for the future, we would kind of see an end to the version of college where it's kind of like a resort town and, you know, colleges are trying to put everything into amenities instead of the education, Um, you know, so that's, you know, again, well, I wonder what, uh, you know, some incentives could be aligned, realigned. Most deaf. So, Evan, we got a main segment. We do. Big, Don't you big, love it? Uh, big ups. Don't you love it how I intro it and put it on you? <laughs> yeah. Because, <laughs> right, again, cool. Joe, I love the limelight. Every yeah. second that I speak, I feel alive. And when I have to sit back and listen, I die again. Right, right. For the for the jokes in the uh, in the off period that nobody's going to hear. But anyway, <laughs> what, what are we talking about? We are talking about the election. Okay, well, holy shit, I gotta I gotta stop right now. I'm I have Facebook open on my laptop. I talked about Purdue and I got a fucking ad for Purdue. I haven't Uh-oh. done anything, Mister Microphone. Please stop listening. That's that's fucking scary. Okay, the election update. <laughs> um, well, well-worn territory on this show. Uh, we have our own music for it, but oh, yeah, not I without good reason. Yeah, good. Remember that. Remember to use our election music. Um, <laughs> but there's a lot that's been going on since Lance. We talked about it. The Democratic National Convention began tonight. Actually, we began our marathon recording session just as the Monday festivities were beginning, so neither Joe or I has been able to see anything from that yet, but we'll catch up on it. Uh, Joe Biden has a vice presidential nominee on his ticket. Donald Trump is perhaps tampering with the United States Postal Service, and the poll numbers are very stark. So where would you and, like to and, begin, and, Joe? And 538 released its election model. I, we had all been waiting for it. I know oh, everybody I else was. Um, I know you have a hatred for 538 based on an election night system that was, had a N of one and and uh, you haven't given it a chance since. But I have been a uh, I listen to their podcasts. They read their content. It's all very good. But anyway, um, hmm, where to start? Um, I think it's easiest to start at Trump bad. <laughs> I like how you say it as a question. Um, but, <laughs> um, so well, let's talk about what he's doing with the United States Postal Service. So obviously, in the midst of a coronavirus pandemic, it is advisable for people to avoid being out in public as much as possible to facilitate this and to avoid long socially distanced line at polling booths. It makes sense to expand access to vote by mail or absentee balloting, which are functionally the same thing. And to do this, we need our post office to have adequate funding to have the resources to deliver our mail in a timely fashion. I, I think you're I think you're making that a little too generous. I want to put it in plain terms as possible. We need the post office to do exactly what it's been doing for every year of our lives since we've ever been born. Nothing for the most part. nothing special. Nothing crazy. It just needs to do exactly what it's been doing 
until well, the last few weeks. With the caveat that there was a political decision made in 2006, which really kneecapped the post office initially. So um, just for a little bit of context, until 2006, the post office was actually revenue positive. The amount that they collected offset its cost and then some. It was solvent. It was one of the best functioning government agencies that we had. But in 2006, Republican lawmakers passed a bill which required the Postal Service to basically prepay for 50 years of employee health care benefits, at which point the Postal Service fell into deep deficits and has been constantly on the brink of financial ruin. But it is being exacerbated now due to decisions by the Trump, administer, Trump administration and his hand-picked Postmaster General Louis DeJoy. Louis DeJoy had no prior postal experience. He's a logistics guy like you, Joe. Uh, and do you think that um, logistics uh, with no prior postal experience would put you in the position to control the entire post office? I mean, maybe be a bureaucrat within, but maybe not run the whole thing. No, I get it. Like, I'm saying that there's transferable skills to be maybe have that as a logical starting off point. But to be the head, do you think that's wise? Uh, You could. I mean, I will also say in the corporate world, people who are kind of executives will move between industries without um, ever really having true experience with them. So it but. But I, the point is taken that the guy is, I mean, the postmaster general, at least in the past, you know, since our lifetime, has been not just some lame, you know, uh, uh, gesture to some donor or whoever. It's been an actual professional position. Um, so, I mean, as long as, you know, I'll, I'll give a pass as long as he wasn't uh, actively trying to uh, sell off the post office. Um, if that was the case, but, um, he's, he's not leading it very well. (laughs) So anyway, there's a bunch of things that are (laughs) happening, which are compromising the post office's ability to effectively and quickly sort and deliver mail. Sorting machines are being removed from post office branches, although there is some sort of defense for that, that I'm not sure if I entirely buy. I'll say no. Fair. Um, but basically when sorting machines are removed, it means mail must be sorted to a greater extent by hand, which is more time intensive. Also, there are more post office drop drop boxes are being removed, which makes it harder for people to deliver their mail in the first place and creates bigger volumes at the drop boxes, which are still in existence, which can again create a backlog. All of this would maybe not be the biggest problem if not for the fact that under the direction of Louis DeJoy, the post office is cutting overtime hours for its staff. And when the post office can't authorize its workers to work overtime and bear that additional labor expense, mail delivery runs slower. Currently, USPS is running on average two days behind their target delivery times. When, as Joe mentioned, for most of our entire lives, they hit their benchmarks. They're extremely efficient. But now we are running behind. And if this continues into the election cycle in November, 
we are faced with the idea of mail being delivered to election offices too late to be counted, meaning that people who, by all rights, are able to vote and have cast a vote may not be counted, which is disenfranchisement. Yeah. It's, uh, now it is one thing if an individual puts, you know, puts the, you know, the ballot in the mail late and it gets there late because they didn't give enough time for it to get there. But then it's another thing for, uh, there to be an expectation of how long it will take for the mail to deliver it and it taking longer than that caused by, uh, you know, deliberate slowdowns. Like in the pre-show, Evan and I had a, a, a big conversation. And one of the my ideas is that, you know, a lot of society's ills can be, um, you know, dealt with by eliminating not just the issue, but eliminating the conditions that cause the issue. And we are just in a scenario where we are ramping up all the causes of issue. Like this is a deliberate ploy to create the conditions for the issue that is voter disenfranchisement. Yes. So it's tough to kind of face this down and what this means is if you are in a position where you want to vote by mail or vote absentee, do it as early as possible. If you are able to vote early in person, that's probably the best way to guarantee your vote will be counted. So it's it's very much worth it to develop a plan for how you are going to vote. I don't think it should be this difficult and involved. There's some people who think that that to vote, you should have to jump through all these hoops and that it really should be only the people who really want to vote should vote. And I don't agree with that. I think that voting should be very easy. Talking same day registration, show up, say, I want to be a part of democracy and cast your vote. But that's not the conditions that we're in for this election. So I urge everyone to really prepare for how you're going to vote this year. Yeah, under normal conditions, um, we are proponent. We were proponents of making voting easier, and yeah. from the original system. And now we're moving into a scenario where it's going to be even harder than normal, which uh, we are not about. I think. Yeah, <laughs> you know, I think if we if we're going to treat voting like it's a right then we should treat it like it's a damn right, not a privilege. Um, but yeah, we have been supporters of vote by mail even before this. Um, marveled what some of the states have done um, in their traditional vote by mail. Now, one possible, possible idea that I could think of against uh, this proliferation of vote by mail is that it's kind of being done in a hasty manner. Like, you know, Washington and Oregon or one or both and or I can't remember. Um, <laughs> they, you know, they spent a lot of time working on their vote by mail system to make sure that it was secure, safe and, you know, uh, is administered correctly. So I do somewhat wonder if some of these states who are hastily trying to put together a vote by mail system will be able to do it. Like, you know, I mean, when I voted for in the Wisconsin primary 
you know, I was able to get one, but a lot of people requested absentee ballots but weren't able to get them. I mean, that was also partially by the nature of how oh, it was so stupid, how it all went down and the time timing of it and all that kind of stuff. But there was a lot of confusion as to the date and yeah. legal challenges. Yeah. You, and municipalities weren't prepared because they thought they didn't have to be prepared. But anyway, so I just hope that states who are attempting to do bigger vote by mail operations are putting together something that will actually stand the test. Yeah. Without the tampering. And if they can uh, get around the tampering, hey, that's that's great. I want to I want a public policy lecture from those people. <laughs> um, I think something that we talk about, Joe and I, is just how rare vote by mail fraud really is. And so obviously you want to take all the safeguards possible, but we've got a couple months and I, I think it's doable or at the very least, like you said, just not make it more difficult. Right. Um, yeah, I believe. Uh, yeah, we should be able to do that. So, um, yeah, Trump is uh, going and he's also gaslighting by uh, tweeting out today in all caps, save the post office. Like, As if he's not the one who has the power to do so. <laughs> yeah. And even if. Even if it wasn't of his own cause, he would be the one to do it. Like, <laughs> anyway, I, you know, over his whole administration, it, it sure does seem like Trump doesn't actually know he's president and is just a <laughs> Fox News viewer. Like, like, I, you know, we may have forgotten, but so if a president and we we may have forgotten because you know this isn't maybe thought about by most people but so if a president wants to do something he calls in his advisors he talks to the people in appropriate levels of government looks at the information try then he talks to congressional leaders and you know if it needs acts of congress you know he there there's a whole lot of stuff and it doesn't it, it it's not at the level of trying to rally his hoorah base to get behind it um, or There's, it, it's it's to a true extent it's politics it is figuring out where the levels levers of power are and how to push them it wouldn't even uh, need to be in terms of an executive action right like trump seems to be able to take a lot of executive orders but in the past like you said presidents meet with congressional leaders and attempt to direct their agenda through the proper channels and or, or yeah, he it just, just doesn't even, happen anymore he could even just get on the phone doesn't even have to be in person get on the phone with his postmaster general and be like hey what's going on here and we're like we're doing this and like okay well if that doesn't change you're not going to be postmaster general anymore we need to ensure that you blah, 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 you know for the american people yada 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 um but um yeah, there is no part of the congressional or, you know, the political process that entails tweeting. Um, <laughs> um, you know, maybe to segue into this, um, it's so stupid and I hate that we're at this point. But when when Joe Biden says, you know, when I'm president, you're not going to have to worry about my Twitter. I'm like, yes, 
that's <laughs> that's nice i can i can get behind that <laughs> um so anyway post office maybe fucked maybe not hopefully not um vote in person if you can yeah and all of this is coming on the backdrop of trump getting smashed in the polls the current real clear politics polling average has biden up by 7.7 percentage points and trust me i am not going to be the one here telling you that polling numbers are locked in i believe that a lot of people lie to pollsters and oftentimes i think we can get sucked into a false sense of security but nonetheless that is the data that we have and i'm reporting it to you and on the uh 538 uh model they have uh biden with a 72 percent chance of winning right now with it looks to be the tipping point states to be about what they were the last time so ones that are kind of looking shaky minnesota pennsylvania wisconsin florida arizona but biden has had some good polling in some of those swing states um so um it's possible but it's not locked in yet. Yeah. So speaking of Biden, obviously they're at the virtual Democratic National Convention sort of as we speak going Monday through Thursday. And he has a pick in for his vice presidential nominee. Who is it, Joe? It is Kamala Harris hey. of California, Senator of California. Howard Dean scream. Yeah. Last time I made that joke, I got it right up to where he did the scream. It was in there, but it wasn't all the way. I had to cut <laughs> it off. But anyway, um, so Kamala Harris is the vice presidential pick for Joe Biden. It is Biden Harris on all the signs in all the yards. If people were that excited about it, but that uh, that also speaks to Biden's campaign strategy. But anyway. Uh, <laughs> Kamala Harris, Evan, what do you have to say? You're, you're well, a big guy who says things. Yeah, so I've tried to sort of, um, I guess, sort of weigh the pros and cons of Kamala Harris joining the ticket, and I've got some of both. Um, I think Kamala's fine. Obviously not one of my most exciting people from the primaries, but fine and so much better than if it would have been Amy Klobuchar. That was a truly terrifying possibility to me, and I'm glad we avoided that. So some good parts of the Kamala Harris vice presidential run. She would be the first woman to serve in the vice presidency. She would be the first woman of color, or I guess person of color at all, to serve in the vice presidency because she is of Jamaican and Indian descent, so she uh, obviously is biracial and can identify both as black and Asian. And those would be uh, incredible steps forward in terms of representation. I think another thing to like about the Kamala Harris vice presidential pick is that she's a really good fit on a ticket with Biden, because I think they share a lot of similarities in their political philosophy. So neither Biden nor Harris is deeply ideological. If you listen to either of them talk, 
they they like to sort of frame their lens of thinking on policy through what's going to help people and obviously that kind of bugs me because it's nebulous and subjective and i think often leads to negative results but nonetheless they're united on it there's not going to be a lot of infighting and i think they're going to weigh political decisions very similarly and that unity on the ticket i think is a strength for biden harris and go ahead yeah i i i think that so one person i I mean i guess just some getting some thoughts out there um one person that i thought would have also been pretty good was tammy duckworth of illinois Ooh, so Uh, glad you brought it up because that was in my notes yeah um which i guess from some of the inside baseball reporting um, she wasn't picked because there were some fears that some rogue judge on some court somewhere in the country would rule that uh, Tammy Duckworth was not, a, in fact, a natural born American citizen, uh, even though under all, uh, you know, everything that we know that falls under natural born, which is, you know, the president of the United States is the only thing in our society that is subject to this term. But, um, because she was born overseas in, I think it was, I think it was Bangkok. Yeah. She was born there when her, I believe it was American soldier dad was over there and her Thai mother, um, had her over there, which since she had a, American parent that makes her an American citizen, but some people yeah. dispute that. I, some people like two people dispute that. I think two. Tammy Duckworth would have been a great pick. The 1790 Naturalization Act and the way that it's been interpreted make it crystal clear that she is legally eligible to serve. Right. And to us, <laughs> but it takes, again, you know, there are some judges out there that just line up anything that, uh, uh, you know, a conservative, you know, challenge wants. And, you know, this, this is a bigger problem that we have, you know, ideological or, you know, party affiliations of judges out there, but it could just take one rogue judge to make a decision in one lawsuit and they're off the ballot in some state. But I think that what's kind of, I guess, interesting to me about that is that, There are already people trying to do the same for Kamala Harris as well, because neither of her parents were citizens at the time she was born. And she was born in Oakland. I mean, unambiguously, an American citizen also (laughs) qualified to serve. So there there are people out there arguing. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. For those who don't know, the way you there are essentially two ways you can become an American citizen. You either are born on American soil and then you are automatically given American citizen. This is what comes up in the discussion of, quote, anchor babies with immigration, if you've ever heard that discussion. Or um, the other way that you become an or you are born an American citizen is if you have at least one parent who's an American citizen. That's it. Um, Either or. I mean, we have a pretty lax policy to citizenship, given that we're a nation of immigrants. Um, This is compared to other nations, but that's how it is. That's how it always has been. But yeah, to your point that uh, 
Kamala is getting the pushback as well. I I would guess that hers is a little bit more firmly grounded, especially since she was born on U.S. soil. Um, And that would have huge implications that even if you are born on U.S. soil, you are like a second class citizen who doesn't enjoy. I mean, real. I, I mean, again, like I said, this is the only place in our society where the term "natural born" has any sort of relevancy. So, I guess serve in the highest office of the land, but that would oh, that would be that would that would be a bigger lift, I would say. Yeah, and I mean, there's definitely legal precedent for the citizenship clause of the Fourteenth Amendment and how that's been interpreted. One of the cases that I found was United States versus Wong Kim Ark where Wong Kim Ark was born to Chinese parents in the United States and then was moved back to China and then attempted to re-enter the United States during a time period where we had a ban against Chinese nationals entering in the country. Great, yay for us. And he was denied entry despite the fact that he was an American citizen and the case made it to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court ruled that based on the constitutionally valid interpretation of the 14th Amendment. That's all he needed to be considered Mm -hmm. a U.S. citizen. So I agree that there's strong legal precedent. It's it's ironclad legal precedent that Kamala Harris is an American citizen and can be the vice president or the president. But I guess I just feel like if if people are going to be racist anyway, Tammy Duckworth would have been fine too. But yeah, like I said, there are still good parts of the of of the idea of Kamala Harris as the vice president. Another good thing for her is she's experienced, you know, she's worked in the Senate. And although I, I feel like it's kind of tough to take a senator out, she's coming from California, so her seat's probably gonna stay blue anyway. Um Yeah, that kind of and became, she does have like, political connections and stuff. Yeah, I, I kinda wanted Warren to be a VP pick, mostly because it seemed like she could kind of um dick cheney the federal bureaucracy around but for good um if you don't know dick cheney was very good at going and browbeating mid-level intelligence officers to make reports what he wanted them in order to justify an invasion into iraq um so imagine just uh having elizabeth warren browbeating people into i don't know making sure elections are more secure or some shit like that i don't know um but something then it, pro-social? Yeah. yeah, something pro-social. But um, yeah, I think she's better in the Senate anyway now. And then but then also, you know, uh, Massachusetts political position, she would be a bit more of a risky pull from the Senate as that mm-hmm. seat would not be as guaranteed to be filled as uh, Kamala's would it will hypothetically be. Absolutely. It's a fair analysis. The other good thing that I think comes from picking Kamala Harris is that she brings a level of renown to the ticket. She made a name for herself with some big moments in the debates when she had her own presidential run. She's sort of a high profile national political figure. And so nobody who is even moderately informed is wasting time saying, who is this? You know, what's going on? I think that One of the many, many decisions that was absolutely horrible by the Clinton campaign was picking Tim Kaine for vice president. Tim Kaine. He brought no energy, no 
intrigue to the campaign. He was just some guy who endorsed Hillary early, and I guess she thought it was safe, and it was a big missed opportunity in a way that I don't think Kamala Harris you know, is a missed opportunity, if, at least if from I, this perspective. If I were to think about Tim Kaine as a vice presidential pick, I think it was an attempt to moderate her image in the eyes of people that her image could not be moderated. That's a really good way to summarize it, I think. Yeah. Like it was trying to get people to calm down that there's like some old stodgy white guy on her as her vice president and people thought she was a lizard. So <laughs> there isn't there isn't a whole lot you can come back from with that. Yeah, those were not she was trying to persuade unpersuadables. Yeah. Um and I mean with Kamala it, it is interesting because she is I mean it some people like to tag her as a moderate, but her positions and her definitely her voting record rank her among the most progressive members of the Senate. It you know, definitely within the top ten um most progressive senators. So this this is a weird instance where uh, the national, you know, the the top of the ticket is a little bit more moderate, and then the bottom of the ticket is more progressive, which hasn't historically happened. It's a little bit more of the the person. Excuse me, the person at the top of the ticket is um, pushing the boundaries a little bit, whereas they'll bring in some other person who's a little bit more experienced or a little bit more moderate and have them to kind of soften the blow. So, so here's where I'm maybe going to push back a little bit because I think Kamala Harris is kind of in a double bind where she does have that progressive voting record. Obviously you're completely accurate about that. And so she's being criticized as being too progressive for people on the right. But at the same time, her voting record does not encompass the totality of her political leanings. And so she opens herself up to criticism from people who are more progressive due to her record on criminal justice while she was the district attorney in San Francisco and the attorney general in California. So I think that's the biggest drawback of the Kamala Harris VP pick is that the staunchest progressive wing of the party will not be enthused. And in many cases, or maybe not many, but some cases, people will be turned off by her selection on the ticket. I think that her record on the death penalty is problematic. She supported three strikes laws well beyond the time when we had the data to know how damaging they were. Um, the case of Daniel Larson is particularly egregious where he was essentially exonerated in court and Kamala Harris fought to keep him in jail because he filed his appeal late. Uh, not a lot of compassion there. Her policy on truancy was absolutely draconian and she's a supporter of civil asset forfeiture, which obviously strikes to the heart of, of my sympathies because I have gone on record speaking out against civil asset forfeiture. So the voting record is nice, but it doesn't quite paint the entire picture of 
who she is, what she stands for when she holds authority and power. And I want to be clear that it's not enough for me to sit out. There's nothing in there. I mean, there's things that are very troubling, but nothing that I would consider disqualifying. But there are people who do find it disqualifying. Yeah, I mean, I... I... I think the people where Kamala Harris is the deciding factor were already were they they were looking for a way out already. I mean, they they haven't been enthused about Biden and you know, there I don't know anyone. I mean, hell, there there is a contingency where hell they could have put Bernie up as the vice president and they would be like fucking sell out. Um, but that, I'm not saying that about you or I, <laughs> maybe even anybody I know, but you know, just those people you see online, the stray, the stray quote tweet, and then you're, you know, just easy to create a villain. But anyway, um, yeah, I don't, <laughs> you know, I, I don't have a ton to say. She seems perfectly fine to me, um, and if anything, um just kind of her in general seems to kind of be to fly a bit under the radar, which seems to be the mantra of this campaign, which I can actually kind of dig. Um, Avoid negative partisanship at all costs. Basically (laughs) that seems to be the lesson. Maybe, maybe, maybe they overlearned a lesson from the 2016 campaign that negative partisanship can be bad, but at this point, I don't know if I know enough. You know, I do like to read 538 and be up on politics and all this kind of stuff and be in the horse trading and horse racing and horses. I guess politicians are horses. And Kentucky Derby? Kentucky Derby? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Did they have the Kentucky Derby this year? I think yeah. they postponed it. I think it's coming later. Oh, you're yeah, right. Okay. Um... <laughs> got really excited there but eh, you know it it just kind of seems like you know joe biden could have picked anybody Uh, you know and the people who ended up being on the short list they all seemed fine to me and none of them were really going to speak to people who are weren't already okay with voting with joe biden at least in my eyes and she seems like a perfectly reasonable pick um i will say that i kind of like not that this is a pass but she was as far as american prosecutors and american attorneys generals go she was progressive but it's a very tough job to be progressive in now that doesn't mean that she couldn't do it but especially coming up in the era of the the aughts um, was still definitely very much a time, even across the nation, of trying to be tough on crime still. And, you know, that being something that both parties were for, I will um, I will fight anybody that says voting for the 93 crime bill has any bearing on a Democratic politician's views on crime today. But um that's a that's a fight for another day. But um, yeah, there are some not great things there. Um, I saw that 
you know that she there was a, there was a decision she fought for um to at the time i forget what year it was to deny trans people transition surgeries in jail which man if i mean i know that has some real consequences for people but it it just feels like an edge case but regardless she fought to deny it and she says it was her office but you know she could have stopped it but yeah it's still not still not great but then also did things like you know fight to um educate uh prosecutors on how to argue against a gay scare defense which is kind of the idea that you know you find someone out someone's gay and then there you could be so startled that it could justify a murder Um, yep the gay panic defense yeah gay panic so you know work to do that so it is ups and downs with and especially with someone who has a career in public office that long most people are going to have those up and ups and downs especially when you know you're a little bit more active so at an attorney general you're doing things a little bit more it's a little bit more of a doing position i mean uh politicians do things as well but i mean you can kind of sit back on your especially if you're a congressperson or a senator in a state or even at the federal level you can kind of sit back and just kind of stand on your principles and never have to be challenged on it but yeah i mean she's perfectly fine i'm still gonna vote for them it i i wasn't moved one way or another yeah i mean i agree that she's fine and i also think that there's a lot of validity to your analysis that probably the bulk of the people who are pissed off by her selection were already pissed off that biden was the head guy but i do think it's still important to evaluate this record and be vigilant for Perhaps areas where we already know that there is the potential for lapse in judgment if important policy decisions come up in this administration, because I think you and I are in complete agreement that the benchmark for this election is be better than Trump, right? Like after in January, either Donald Trump and Mike Pence are going to be in the White House or it's going to be Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. And for my calculus, it's not a close decision. Not at all. Uh, So that's. Yeah, not. It's a meaningful. (laughs) It's a meaningful benchmark for the election. I I just want to finish this real quick. Okay, you got Um, But it's not a good benchmark for the presidency. Just to say for Joe Biden to roll over or Kamala Harris or whoever ends up taking an influential role in policy just to say, well, we're better than Trump. Well, you know, we are, uh, we still support the death penalty, but at least we're not colluding with Russia. That's, that's not a good enough benchmark for governance. There's a different standard electorally and in terms of the actual actions post-election. Yeah. You know, I bet I, I, you know, and then also in the age of polarization, you know, I'm polarized, um, <laughs> uh, even though I try to listen to the other side and, you know, I am open. I won't say I'm never going to vote for a Republican, but I, you know, it, it, this current environment makes it somewhat impossible. But it's just that, you know, I'll vote for, you know, maybe I won't 
get what they want. But, you know, at this point, the Democrats are the only person who would at least hear my concerns and believe that there are at least some people in the party who um, want to do anything about it or I guess even want to do anything about anything other than making abortion harder and doing everything possible to transfer more wealth to the wealthy people. Like that seems about what the Republican party is about. And, you know, and I'm just so, you know, still that they have just no vision other than, Hey, let's give rich people money. (laughs) But, um, yeah, I, I mean, that's just to the point like if if it was even that there was still a competent Republican Party who had positive visions of society and worked to do things, then maybe I could consider. But, you know, just at this point, I'm I'm sure. Fuck it. I'm a Democrat. <laughs> <laughs> um, nothing. Nothing is like as it currently stands. There's nothing that's really going to change that for me. Um, unless somehow everything changes in the political dynamic between the two parties in this country, which probably won't happen unless, you know, the Republicans suffer a crippling defeat this time, but who knows, maybe they'll just tea party 2.0 it, which, which is such a real possibility. (laughs) like i you know i don't know if you listen to it um there was the ezra klein podcast with that uh i think it was like uh the uh republican insider well no no it wasn't that one it was another it was the weeds episode with ezra and matt and it was just titled you know what are the republicans doing and you know they did some reporting with some you know uh uh congressional republicans or staffers and all that kind of stuff and basically the position now is they don't want to do anything because they know the next day Trump will probably say that he wants to do the opposite. So get in trouble that way. And then also that if they vote for any measures right now, they believe that there is a second Tea Party coming and any votes on any uh, assistance now will be seen as bad blood and that they'll just be kicked out of primary with someone even more radical, which to think that there are people more radical who could primary these people who are already in office. But <laughs> it's 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 just deadlock. And I hope for a system that can come after this election that isn't just deadlock. So let's do multi-member districts. Yeah. <laughs> Or get rid of the filibuster. How about both? Let's do it all. <laughs> Wait a minute. Let's. What if we took it down to the state level? Let the states decide. What if we took it down to the county level? Let the counties decide. You know, in uh, Sweden, that's actually the level that their healthcare is administered at. How does that work? I mean, like, is it effective? Yeah. Is it a good system? Can we steal it? I mean, I don't know if there would be I, – I think there's a whole lot more bureaucracy that is built up at the Swedish county level than is at the United States county level. Um, like basically the the money goes from the general fund of the Swedish government into each county's coffers for however much you know per citizen and then it's up to them to provide health care to the, the people of the county. Hmm. So – 
Um, I don't necessarily trust uh, the counties of the United States to provide health care. So, no. (laughs) (laughs) So that's not where we should invade next. No, we should not invade the county board meeting. But you should go to the county board meeting. Um, But, you know, virtually. Yeah. Or with a mask on, you know. Or, you know, just go out with your friends, but claim that you're following the guidelines when you're not. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Let me see. Do we have anything else to go on on about the election? Uh, I mean, I guess just sort of to sum up, um, it appears that Trump is wildly unpopular, but he has overcome that before. And we're also facing a crunch where... Uh, We may end up having low turnout, which typically favors conservative parties within the United States. And we also gave an update on what the Dems are doing. I don't even know if it would necessarily be a low turnout election. If all of the mail-in ballots can't get cast, wouldn't that necessarily lower turnout? Well... Maybe I didn't listen to the sentence you said with the <laughs> fine tooth comb. Um, yeah, I mean, I I think there's a potential for this to be a pretty high turnout election. But I think if it was non-pandemic times, absolutely. But now there's now it's in question. Yeah, and especially if the pandemic had gotten wrapped up, but um, <laughs> or maybe not. You know, <laughs> who's but to say? Who's to say? I don't know. It's the future. <laughs> we can't possibly predict. Yeah. Yeah. Call the Weather Channel. See if they can predict it. <laughs> Man, you know, I'm thinking now that there's like some weird fifth risk government bureaucrat who is predicting every election correctly, you know, but it's just like buried deep within the bureaucracy. <laughs> so sure everything's in there well on that um do we have an end segment got any ideas um i've been watching the last dance oh shit i it's been on my list i haven't haven't started it yet go ahead uh give me give me some takes it's on netflix um it's good uh michael jordan does some b-ball it was some pivotal times Seems very, uh, if I were there in the moment, that would have been pretty cool thing to watch. Um, yeah. I mean, Go you Jordan. were there, but it's cool. I mean, I was there for like the back half of it and not intelligible for any of it. So. What, three-year-old Joe wasn't like an avid stat head? No, no, I was a sneaker head. Oh. Yeah. Little, uh. Little uh, baby size sneakerhead. Yeah, yeah. I had the Jordans, but I didn't know about anything about basketball. Um, <laughs> you just thought they were comfortable. Yeah, yeah. I'm one of those people who's who's like right next door to a very fervent community, but I have no idea what's going on. I just like some side thing. <laughs> Sting is one of my idols. I don't listen to his music, but the fact that he's out there making it, I respect that. You know, I, I I don't know anything about basketball, but this Jordan man, he makes a really good shoe. 
<laughs> well, I do think there's something to be said for our sort of universal reverence for excellence. You know, if someone is the best at something, if someone is truly a cut above, you don't really have to know a lot about the field to appreciate it. Yeah. That's, <laughs> and that's the thing about Jordan. It just seemed, oh man, just how much of his life was that. And, yeah. and how, like, you know, we've talked about having the desire to do things. Michael Jordan had the desire to win like nothing else. And, like to a scary degree. Yeah. And basketball was just his chosen medium. And, mm. um, yeah, I, I don't need to win that bad. so i guess uh that brings us to the close unless you have anything else you want to say no no thanks to everyone for listening uh having a good time yeah thanks uh anthony hish for uh the music as always um thank you for listening um and yeah i my name's joe hicks and mine's evan kelly And we hope that you've been adequately informed.